Welcome to the Housing Justice LA podcast. I'm Molly Reisman. I am Lorraine Cantley. On this podcast, we explore how principles of housing justice can help address the crisis of homelessness in Los Angeles. We are starting today with a personal story from Reginald Murray. Reginald Murray here, a recently released ex-lifer who served over 27 years incarcerated. I've been home over two years now and was outraged to find the uh, growing homeless population in the city I love. It's not a choice homelessness is in this city today. It's a systematic problem uh, that has to do with uh, rising cost and greed. There's a lot of people, hardworking people, who can't afford to sustain permanent housing right now. At first, I thought that it had to do with just the drugs and uh, mental illnesses. But after two years, I find it's still very difficult for myself, who's been working steadily for two years, to find affordable housing that I can sustain with my income I generate today. I am a a community demonstrator with a prominent uh, foundation that aids gentlemen formerly released after long stay or ex-lifers who's coming home who needs uh, transitional housing. Uh, We run a six months to a year program where we offer education, uh, mental health, mental stability, job training, job readiness, job placements. And uh, we also uh, try to find permanent housing for our students. As of today, it's very difficult to offer a resident a permanent housing situation. We can offer a student, a resident at a housing program, but a lot of our students are looking to be self-sufficient. They would like to cook their own food, wash their own dishes, and unlock their own doors. And they would like to establish their own apartment where they are sole occupant uh, and not a shared uh, living quarters, as we have found our situation to only offer a shared living quarters. And the reason being a cost. Myself, I go through countless situations where I'm making phone calls, uh, searching the Internet, looking for locations for these gentlemen to find housing after our program. Uh, it's been very difficult. Uh, we've been able to find residence housing programs, just moving the guys from one program to the next. But for them to find a permanent residence, what they can call their own home, uh, where they can pay their own rent and live comfortably, it's been very difficult to find. Uh, cost is out of their uh, financial gains at this time, being that a lot of these gentlemen only run maybe $30,000 a year coming out of prison. Rent in California is $2,000, which is way a lot of their financial needs. We take the guys down to the housing authority. We sign up for uh, supplement housing. We sign up for housing programs. We sign up for uh, project programs where it's permanent housing. We send applications to different organizations that help with housing. You know, paperwork after paperwork, one entity send you to the next entity, send you to the next entity, and it's just a waiting list. Uh, A lot of my guys are looking for Section 8 uh, supplement housing, 
and the list is extremely long and then by them uh, being newly released a lot of their paperwork is behind uh, a lot of their history is questionable and it just feels like uh, people just put them on a the back burner uh, and like I say these guys are you know coming out of you know, prison after 20 30 years and just trying to do right and are getting jobs which is a blessing uh, earning an income earning wages and prepare to pay their rent every month take care of themselves but cannot afford to cannot find housing that would accept them in a clean and, and decent environment i mean right now it's very frustrating for a lot of the guys myself included there's a great number of inmates or gentlemen being released back into society women as well who are ready to do right by themselves and their community uh, it would be greatly appreciated if there was a situation or a program where apartment complexes could be designed uh, focusing on the uh, revenue that were able to be generated by these gentlemen and ladies where it would cater to helping and assisting these gentlemen and ladies uh, who's coming back into our societies who who's paid their debt who's ready to move on with their life and just need a opportunity to do so in a safe place they want to start their life they want to be comfortable in where they're at they want to have that value that they are bringing to the table after doing what they needed to do to be uh, released and make it home and they want to make a home for themselves and as it stands right now that seems to be an impossible task because wherever they go or wherever they turn they've been focusing on weight or this is coming or we're overstretched or we don't have enough resources right now or there's things in place just be patient and you just continue to hear that over and over again and I feel like if we have all this resource we have all this money this California is like seventh in the world of financial independence it should be noted that there's a population out here that needs assistance and that there's people addressing this assistance uh, that's willing to stand up or, or step out and invest in our, our population in, in this these people who's coming home they invested in re-entry they invested in uh, prison reform now what now you have a booming possibility for an additional homing a population to occur because these people you're releasing can't find housing so either you put them back in incarceration which that's not what they do or you put them on the side of the street to join the growing population that's out there already you look at a gentleman or a lady who did 20 years and received 200 dollars stifling upon a release placed in a transitional housing program if they're lucky when they do six months uh, first three months is reflection where we try to help these individuals taking the fact that they are home that there's a different living quality i mean they've learned to live a certain way for so long and we try to get them reacclimated into society as it as it stands afterward we offer them opportunity to get employment now they have savings we ask that they have savings so they're coming out of our program maybe ten thousands in saving uh go to apply for a place i mean they had their first and last they have to move in but 
the lease would probably eat up more than half of their income uh, in LA right now. And that's what we're looking at, trying to find a housing situation that allows uh, these individuals to be housed according to the income they have. So yeah, I mean, equality for these people and myself in tow would be very beneficial. You know, I work, I generate about $35,000 a year and I myself have, have difficulties finding housing that I can afford and be comfortable in at my situation because a third of my income doesn't cover the $1,600, $1,700 rent that's needed. Transitional housing is a entry level into self-sufficiency. This would give a person the opportunity to understand finance. We would do budget training uh, so people can understand how to budget their money, uh, save their money. Also, how to pay not only just rent, but the other avenues, groceries, uh, toiletries, laundry. A lot of times these people don't understand the difference or, or the amount of responsibility there. So all this would play into how the choices would be made on who placed in these homes and what keeps them in these homes. So you would have maybe a social worker uh, go in and speak to the person or counselor to see where they're at in their transitional in and out. Uh, questions about what they look like in their future. What goals are they setting for themselves? If you put a person in a good situation, that person uh, thrives and grow and inspire. Actually, that's my job to inspire people coming out of that situation, trying to make a living for themselves. It's done by one teaches one. So if that person can come home, show a path to success, then the next person can come home and see that same path and follow it. And the next person can come home and see that same path and follow it. And what we're trying to do is establish that breadcrumb to success, uh, one person at a time, one good situation at a time. If the community at large can invest and see value in these people and place support behind that value, then it can be an ongoing cycle of success, one after the next. And that's the, the greatest thing to have that independence. And once someone finds that independence, you find that self-worth, you find that self-esteem, you move forward with it. You take the time to give back. And a lot of the gentlemen and ladies who've had this opportunity to come home, like myself, who made a successful transition, who's in a good place, I take that back to these same gentlemen and ladies and inspire them that uh, it's possible to be in a good space out here. It's possible to live by the rules that govern our laws and not fall back into drugs, crime, violence as a means to survival. That picture is what we want to put forth into these people who's coming because first they have to believe in themselves and the way they do that by seeing that success is possible. Uh, we're home, now what? How do we transition? What value do we place in ourselves? What picture do we see? You see a person like myself who's been home two years, who's been working, who's been living, who's been paying bills, who has a credit score of 700 plus, who's paying off cars, who's making the right decisions day after day and happy about it. So if I inspire the next person and the next person inspire the next person, we have a success rate, our crime rate goes down. 
and we have a community that's out here paying their due taxes, who's living according to uh, the law and inspiring others to do the same. We are very grateful to Reginald for sharing his story with us. Today's episode is about othering, NIMBYism, and criminalization. If you've not heard the acronym NIMBY before, it stands for Not In My Backyard. We have the perfect guest to talk about this topic. Becky Dennison is the executive director of the Venice Community Housing Corporation. Prior to taking that position, she was one of the founders of the very well-known Los Angeles Community Action Network, or LA CAN, and spent over a decade working on Skid Row. A quick note about the timing of this interview. This interview was recorded in February before the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome to the Housing Justice LA podcast, Becky. Thank you. Um, it's great to have you on. I was reading an interview um, that you did in the past, and you talked about some volunteer work you did in high school and college that got you interested in homelessness. And I'd love to hear about those early experiences and what they were and what they got you interested in about homelessness. Sure. I mean, in high school, I just volunteered at a shelter that my mom's church made dinner for um, like once a month or something like that. And I can't say I was probably super interested in it. I was just (laughs) made to go there. But I did like going after a while because I really enjoy meeting people and I liked learning about what was happening. And homelessness in Minneapolis at that time um, was not a huge crisis, right? We're talking about probably a few hundred people. It seemed that we could do something and make an impact by helping out pretty minimally. Um, And I liked that. And so in college, I actually came on a work trip here to Los Angeles. And we stayed at the Bell Shelter. And it was an immersion trip to learn more deeply about homelessness and homeless services, really, actually more about homeless services than homelessness. And um, we visited all of the service providers at the time. And we lived and stayed and followed the rules of the shelter and met all these really cool and amazing people who both worked and lived there um, who just became my friends. And so when I moved back to Los Angeles, I was working as an engineer for LA County and I wanted to do things that were more meaningful outside of my job. So I just reconnected with those folks and worked at the Salvation Army and some other places. And sometimes I didn't even really work. I was really just like hanging out and um, learning about people. And I was really drawn to the Skid Row community because of that sense of community, but also because for me, it felt like where all of these pieces of social justice, and in this case, injustice, were really coming to a head. And it just felt like if you knew about that, you needed to be more involved and do something about that. What years was it when you like stayed at the Bell Shelter? Because I'm also curious um, what programs were like back then, because homelessness, street homelessness was still pretty new. Um, if I'm assuming that may have been the 90s. Yeah, I stayed there in 90 and 91. And um, yeah, program would be a bit of a stretch, I'd say. Um, People came in on buses from all over the county. So there was like a Long Beach bus and a Santa Monica bus, because I don't think there were a ton of shelters yet at the time. So a bus came from kind of, I believe, like eight regions of the county. People got dropped off at five o'clock. Literally, you got like a cup of noodles and some coffee, slept on cots, like side by side by side, one room for women and one room for men. And it was predominantly men. The women's room was actually quite small. 
And at six o'clock in the morning, you know, the alarm would go off and they'd get on the microphone and be like, 15 minutes till the bus leaves. And people would like grab a cup of coffee and go get on the bus and go back to whatever neighborhood they were in. I would not say there was a lot of support. It was very emergency. Um, Staff would try to support folks, but they were there to run the shelter, not to provide case management or services. It was pretty bare bones. Yeah, that's a lot different from what is being established today. Thanks to Let's hope so. <laughs> yeah. I was actually doing um, winter shelter volunteering when they had this very uh, extreme weather. So Lhasa sent out all these notices for everyone. Please volunteer at your winter shelter. We need your help. And uh, there was case managers coming in. There was folks from DMH and coming from the mental health, folks coming from other shelters who would like help them in the transitioning from just this emergency shelter. It was nice to see how folks were coming in. And then I did get the experience with those who were experiencing homelessness and they just wanted to talk. And some of the shelter uh, volunteers, they were like, you're just so open to talking to them. How is that possible? I'm like, well, I'm a person. They're a person. (laughs) it's just conversation yeah yeah Yeah. I can really um let you know that I acknowledge that you spending time with people and not seeing it as work is something that I appreciate yeah I mean that's just how I felt and it's how I try to train people now and get people engaged now I think even amongst the best service providers sometimes there is a you know, we use like these professional boundaries and other things, which are very important. (laughs) I'm not a social worker. I don't want to take away from that importance. But they take away from the relationship building that really, I think, changes our lives and our society for the better. Yeah. I'm interested in this engineering. (laughs) I don't know that much about it. I worked as an engineer for two years, but I'll tell you what I know. (laughs) Okay. Well, tell us about you getting into engineering and then that switch into getting into homelessness. So there's no great story about me becoming an engineer because um, in high school I had zero idea of what I wanted to do. I applied to go to college very, very late in the process because I was intent on leaving Minneapolis and then I realized you needed like a lot of money to leave Minneapolis. So I applied to go to school really late and as an undecided student and they put me in engineering school and so that's what I did. I appreciate that time and I appreciate that level of schooling because really it is just about problem solving and being analytical about things and so I think that I am a pretty decent problem solver because of that and I think early on I brought kind of a different philosophy or a different kind of way of thinking into social services which I think was a good compliment um, to other folks and I still feel that way so um, I worked as an engineer for LA County we did environmental work I worked at a wastewater reclamation plant which was very uh, new at the time still also we don't use enough reclaimed water in LA County 28 years later and that was super interesting to me but not for the long term. So when you did make the switch and you started working in homelessness, I know that you were um, working in like a transitional housing program and would also love to hear, you know, what the experience of working in the transitional housing model was for you. So transitional housing at the time was a 60-day program, and we were expected to serve 388 people at one time. Mm. 
for 60 days and move them into permanent housing. So that was very challenging even way back then. It was a very rewarding time, and I still know a lot of folks that I knew as their case manager, as their program manager, who are housed, and I see them sometimes. But it was, for me, I think I learned everything that uh, was wrong with the system by doing that, that permanent housing was so under-resourced, and we had so few places to move people to. Um, I worked in the Section 8 voucher program, and even then, it was really, really hard to use vouchers in this housing market. So all of the things that existed then are just exacerbated now, which is why I have spent from that time forward, all of my time on permanent housing solutions, both housing preservation, tenant rights, keeping folks in their housing, and trying to advocate for or build permanent housing. So yeah, it was tough. And the rules were overwhelming. It was such a punitive model Mm -hmm. in that, you know, someone would do one thing wrong and they'd be sitting on the curb when you'd be walking in in the morning. There was a bunch of us at that time working there that were younger and I think more social justice oriented. So we fought for things like security, not being able to kick people out in the middle of the night. And we won that. And that programs made decisions about people's lives, not people who were enforcing rules. And, you know, we worked really hard to try to tweak the model. But at some point, you know, you just hit a limit and it was time to move on. And, um, you know, that's sort of the impetus of the formation of LA Can is that the service providers' leadership were so disconnected from the community and just started sort of imposing this top-down model. And we thought by building a, a grassroots model, we could start to shift and change that. Tell us more about the LA Can. Like I said, we it was a group of us who had worked in the neighborhood for a long time and then a group of folks that had lived in the neighborhood um, for a long time as well. Um, We just started as a committee of a larger nonprofit designed to hold leadership accountable to what folks who were experiencing homelessness or had experienced homelessness were feeling and and doing. And some of the policies we realized that we were advocating for also, even though we were connected, were really not creating the impact that we wanted on the ground. Um, And so it was kind of a check and balance system that we created through this committee that we just decided, um, and Pete White is one of the founders, and he and I were co-directors for a long time, and he will always tell this story, so I'll just tell it. He was like, we need to build our own organization. And I said, we need to change the organizations that exist. Like, why do we need to build a new organization? And um, he was right, and he likes when I say he was right, um, <laughs> that the organizations were so entrenched in what they were doing that like, we needed to build our own organization. And that's what we did. And we built it as a membership organization, and we hired locally from the Skid Row community, and we just built something entirely different that was solely focused on community organizing and leadership development in a way of building power um, for a neighborhood that had either been spoken on behalf of by other folks who were not from there and never built a relationship with a person there or had just been disinvested in through, you know, decades of institutional racism and the means of the city um, ignoring that community. First creating it through a policy of containment and then completely disinvesting in it and leaving folks with nothing. So, um, and we worked on all kinds of stuff. We thought we would just work on um, things that were directly related to homelessness, but right after we were formed, the city started really reinvesting in downtown Los Angeles through redevelopment plans. And so we just got involved in 
all kinds of anti-gentrification work and um, equitable development work, and we just kind of built our knowledge as we went. It's a cool organization. It was a great place to be. So this episode, we're looking at the connections between criminalization, nimbyism, othering. Um, when I first got introduced to L.A. Can, there was a big focus on criminalization. And I'd love to sort of hear, having worked on these issues for a number of decades, how you've seen criminalization of people experiencing homelessness change over the years. I think, unfortunately, it hasn't changed as much as we would like, um, though I will say at certain times it has been alleviated to some extent. I can speak from the Skid Row perspective first, which was, you know, prior to the latest wave of redevelopment of downtown, there wasn't a ton of policing or criminalization in Skid Row, and the police would actually tell folks that it was one of the safest communities, um, the reporting districts in the city, which it still is, I believe, and sort of try to kind of appease folks that they were trying to draw into downtown. And then once they did that, then the othering starts right in the fear-based um, and the race-based kind of hate and fear starts happening. And then that's when the criminalization really intensified and became really a more concrete city policy under Mayor Villaraigosa and the Safer Cities Initiative. LA Can had always been focused on criminalization. I think our first issue was that the city was going to try to make providing food in public illegal, and which was a kind of the heartbeat of the Skid Row community, which is folks come in and provide food, and it's a really necessary and good thing, and especially for folks who are a little averse to standing in line or religious-based programming and all this kind of thing. So it had been what we had always focused on, which was people's civil rights and people's ability to help each other, either from outside the community or, or inside the community. Um, but then when the Safer Cities Initiative started, it became almost our sole focus. And that was because they flooded the neighborhood with police, both um, beat cops, undercover cops, metro, drugs. I think it was 110 total extra officers in a 50-square-block area for something like six or seven years. And it was the most intensive policing of public space that anyone had seen in the country. And so, I mean, we spent all of our time building people's skills to do police monitoring, to document violations, to be able to bring civil rights lawsuits, to be able to bring to City Hall what was really happening to people on a daily basis. And that's when I think, for me anyway, personally, I realized that the need to work on housing solutions and against criminalization is urgent and necessary among all of us. And I think the housing and service provider community has been wary, if not unwilling, <laughs> to get involved in the fight against criminalization. And so, um, you know, I feel like that is a role for me at Venice Community Housing. VCH has always also been adamantly and publicly opposed to criminalization efforts because Venice has also been kind of a hot spot for that kind of policing. But I think the unfortunate thing right now is that let's say five-ish years ago, I think there was a policy shift away from that. And we started to see politicians realize, first of all, I don't know that they all care about the human rights violations, but that is just ineffective. You cannot police people out of sight um, that we have to actually invest in solutions. And in the past year or so, I think we've seen a real return to this criminalization mentality, 
that folks need to have a stick to, you know, get into housing and services that absolutely don't exist for people. Um, the things that Nuri Martinez is saying now as council president are frightening and take us backwards in terms of policy that really works and that's humane. The means of criminalization have not shifted or changed over the years. The intensity shifts and changes. And now the geography is expanding way beyond these former spaces, Hollywood, Venice, and Skid Row that saw a lot of policing. One of the things that was always fascinating for me around Safer Cities is that what really sparked Safer Cities was a series of articles that Steve Lopez wrote in the LA Times about Skid Row. So I forget exactly when it was. I think Safer Cities was launched like October 2006. And maybe like six months before that, there was this series about um, Skid Row. And what I read is like, there's a lot of sick people who really need help. And then Viragosa toward Skid Row with Steve Lopez. But his response, instead of the help that people needed, was all these additional police officers and policing. And what's always so fascinating to me about criminalization is that people are able to spin it in this way that it's help mm-hmm. when it is so clearly just making people's lives more difficult. Um, but I know that there was this very distorted response to these series of articles highlighting people who needed help in Skid Row. Which was entirely intentional. So they um, started planning for Safer Cities probably two years before the launch. They called it the Homeless Elimination Plan or something like that. And then they decided that they needed a nicer name to it. But the methodology that George Kelling brought, and he was a consultant to LAPD, and he is the sort of founder of Broken Windows, Quality of Life Policing, um, was to use the media to create a sense of public will so that when the police came out, it would look and feel like help and that there would be this broad support for, of course we have to do something in this community all of these terrible things are happening to people and that they courted Steve Lopez to do that and many others, not just Steve Lopez, to create this sense of public goodwill. It was a strategy. And we were in some of those meetings before they sort of knew who we were. (laughs) So we heard the strategy. It was a definite concerted effort to build public will to say, well, we can't let this exist. So these police are really necessary. And they convinced themselves. I mean, they had to have convinced themselves that they were doing... a good thing. The line over and over and over again that this is all for the good of the folks who live there, that we really care about making it life safer for them. When they were arresting thousands of people, 750 people a month, and giving out 1,000 citations a month in a community that was home to like 11,000 people. It was crazy. And people believed it. Everybody believed it was the right thing to do, minus a handful of us. And nobody who lived there thought it was the right thing to do, by the way. (laughs) Oh, I'm impacted by hearing that there was this strategy that was put in place to use the media to basically have people brainwashed that this is what is needed to be done. And even hearing how it's been set up in such a way to where they put us in these spaces and then they disinvest in the community and then they put this brainwashing that you are only just this ghetto, this poverty, this just all these mindsets that I see a lot of people that I work with 
uh, believing that this is just who I am. And I'm like, you're so much more than just this. Yeah. And we didn't even know that this was the setup for many years that has led to what I call the pipeline to homelessness. How could you expect someone who's been so broken to know how to even grab the bootstrap right. to pull themselves up? Right. Woo. Yeah, it's intense and it's really calculated and it continues. I mean, right now it's happening pretty intensely in Echo Park in a way that I don't think we've seen in many, many years, but it's exactly that. It's like all of these folks who believe or state, you know, that folks just really need to reach out and get connected to services and what have you. And, you know, that's really the issue. And the issue is that there is an extreme lack of housing and services, that people are reaching out every single day. And in doing so, in just trying to survive, they're going to get services and coming back and all of their stuff is gone. All of their paperwork they need for the next day to go to a housing appointment is gone. Or they get a citation that ends up being on their credit record because it's unpaid and those kinds of things. And so then they've got a housing voucher later on and no landlord will take them for credit history, right? And those are just like the annoying things that happen with criminalization, not to mention people being in and out of jail, people getting overcharged for things that other people would never be charged for, and the more intensive long-term impacts of criminalization. And anybody who says that policing in that way is necessary or helps people has never spoken to somebody who lives on the street or refuses to hear that um, that level of law enforcement is deeply, deeply racist and classist and continues to target the same group of people over and over and over again and not be challenged in the way that other civil rights violations of that level would not be tolerated in this city. We stand up, rightfully so, and I stand along with, right, as a sanctuary city, as, you know, not criminalizing folks for other status issues and those kinds of things, and yet we continue as a city to be the worst in the country in the policing of homelessness and the punishment of homeless folks living on our streets and sidewalks when we know that there are no alternatives for those folks. It is unconscionable. The other thing that I think people don't understand if they haven't spent a lot of time in Skid Row is that Skid Row actually has a really strong fabric of community. I had to experience the community before I could understand that. And I'm a little ashamed of this memory now, but I'll tell it because I think it's important for people to sort of hear. So the first time I went to Skid Row... Um, in 2004, I was an intern for Liberty Hill, and they were making grants to L.A. Can, and they had given L.A. Can one of the Liberty Vote grants to help register people to vote leading up to the 2004 election. And so the day of the election, they had asked me to go. I think L.A. Can was hosting a party at the James Wood Center to like celebrate that you'd done all this great work registering to people to vote, and people had participated in the election, and there was this celebration. And I had never been to Skid Row. And so I drove to Skid Row. It was like, I don't know, seven o'clock at night. It was dark. And there's no parking around the James Wood Center. Um, They've eliminated all the parking. Um, So I like drive to the James Wood Center and I'm like circling for a while. And I got freaked out. I'd never been in the community and the idea of parking four blocks away and walking through Skid Row scared me so much that I was like, I can't do this and just left. 
And then I started working in Skid Row and realized like, this is actually not a particularly dangerous community. I mean, the amazing thing for me once I started working in that community is you walk down the street and you say to folks, how are you doing today? And strangers say, blessed. Like that's the answer you get. Like you experience community when you're there in a totally different way than you do anywhere else in the city. So to have a community with such a strong sense of community and such a deep connection, the people in that community are so open to being in community with others to then, you know, foist this intense policing on them, I think was also particularly destructive um, yeah. and also unnecessary. Yes, to all of those things. It is an amazing community in so many ways. I think the other thing people don't know about Skid Row is that it is largely a housed community of the 11 or 12,000 folks who live there. Um, 5,000 people are homeless, but the majority are folks who are housed, um, living in primarily in residential hotels. And so when we think about sort of NIMBY voices and people calling for police and all these things that happen, certainly in Venice, housed folks called for more police all the time. And in other neighborhoods, it wasn't just unhoused folks who were targeted by this criminalization. You saw it at the trust. People lost their housing because they were in jail for stupid, you know, drug possession crimes. And the crazy thing is, it's not that long ago that the drug laws have shifted so substantially that they would not be able actually to target folks the way they did under Safer Cities anymore because all of the supposed drug crimes were possession-based. And then they would charge them up to possession yeah. with the intent to sell. Exactly. Right? Possession so for sale. Yeah. We saw all these endless possession for sales where somebody would have a tiny amount of crack and they would say, well, you didn't have a crack pipe, so clearly you were intending to sell that crack, so it's possession for sales, and they'd ramp these things yeah. up. And then they could say that they were going after drug dealers, right? Because the stats looked as if they were, they were... If you had that many drug dealers in a community, there'd be a lot of violence, I'm going to say. Um, and a but, lot more money. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but that was the, the narrative, right? And so that's how you make the stats show that, that, oh, we're not going after folks. We're really going after the people who prey on other people. And it was incredibly devastating to the entire housed and unhoused community. People were literally just disappearing. Mm. Um, and there were sentence enhancements that increased people. So things you would go to county jail for, people were going to state prison for. And people lost all kinds of those social connections. And, and like the state of just sort of well-being yep. in terms of seeing that level of policing and also because it is such a small space and so many people are out on the streets and in parks and whatever you know you would just see it regularly with folks up against the wall cuffs on and those kinds of things and, and just the mental toll um, that it took on people and to watch people just be taken away day after day it was just unbelievable <laughs> that it happened in this era. And it's unbelievable that we are taking steps back toward that model right now. I mean, I've just been struggling with it personally. It's like, are we really going back there? It's like intense for me, even as an observer and as a someone who is trying to be engaged and fight against it. But I certainly wasn't impacted personally in that same way. I just feel like we need to be doing more right now. If we see the writing on the wall, we need to be stopping all of that before we head anywhere in that direction again. So in 2016, you left L.A. Can to become the executive director of the Venice Community Housing Corporation. What was it like going from Skid Row to Venice? 
I had lived in Venice for a decade when I first got to LA, so I have deep love for Venice also. Venice was a very different place in the 90s than it is today. I didn't realize how different it was. Um, but there are quite a few similarities in the communities in terms of kind of the gentrification fights that historically it's always been a place where the really the lowest income folks and the highest income folks have lived together in community. That's becoming less and less so in Venice, unfortunately. Has push out has been far more intense in Venice than in downtown. You know, VCH had a long history in the neighborhood. We've been there for 30 years and um, had been very engaged in all of the similar issues to LA Can. So I felt like it was really hard, actually, to leave LA Can and leave downtown. But, you know, I think we need to open up leadership positions for folks in organizations and people get stagnant in jobs. So for me, it felt like a really easy step. Um, in terms of the similar issues and then enough new things in terms of actually building housing and providing housing and doing that more directly than just doing it through advocacy. So there were a lot of things I thought would be very similar. I will say the fights in Venice are different. I think that the low-income community, including unhoused community, is just so much smaller in comparison to the wealthy community. So it's the imbalance is really, really hard. Um, like there's not as strong of a voice um, for low-income folks. There's not as much organizing as it was happening in downtown. So that makes the fights harder sometimes. I think the NIMBY voices are much louder and more, um, ugh, I don't even know what the word is. In downtown LA, there was largely support for more affordable housing. Certainly the business community would kind of try behind the scenes to limit affordable housing development, but generally publicly people knew that affordable and supportive housing worked. It was a model they supported. There were policies they supported. Whereas there's a group, a relatively small group in Venice, but you know, a group of voices that just believe that affordable and supportive housing you know, is dangerous, is bad for communities, that folks should live anywhere but here, that we should only be building housing in cheaper neighborhoods. Um, it's too expensive. People don't deserve to live by the beach. So that kind of battle over the turf is different um, than it was in downtown. And it makes it hard, I think. We are, we're trying to build 235 new units in Venice. There's not been a ground-up 100% affordable building built in Venice for 20 years. <laughs> And it makes it tough to be in community spaces where the debate is so polarized and the language used about other people is so offensive. So we're trying to build spaces in which I think the majority of Venice is, which is about true dialogue and community building and inclusiveness. And that's what we're really focused on. And we do that through a variety of methods. But in the public realm, it's really contentious and quite different than downtown. Why do you think Venice is this? I mean, it certainly has a reputation as a stronghold of nimbyism. And I totally recognize that that is a small contingent of the community and not representative of the whole community. But I certainly have experienced having worked on siting projects all over the city that there is something unique about Venice. <laughs> Agree. Agree. And I, I don't exactly know what or why. That was really the most shocking thing to me in working in Venice because I, like I said, I, I lived there for a long time. I think it is a 
it, I don't think it is a historically diverse neighborhood. It's um, long been that way. And again, most folks, it's also seen as a very liberal community, as kind of an anything goes space, which is why the Venice Boardwalk is like this gathering place for all kinds of folks. So I don't understand it. If I did, I think we'd be probably be doing better in confronting it. A little bit it is if you say something enough times, it becomes true, right? <laughs> and so, you know, there's a narrative that starts and it's fear-based. It's not that dissimilar from sort of the more intentional piece around Safer Cities. It's just people start this believing of the neighborhood's gotten better in certain people's minds through gentrification. It has legitimately gotten safer. There was definite, you know, crime and violence issues in Venice 20-some years ago. Um, and so... People want to preserve it as their own and become, you know, it becomes really exclusionary. And when when you call folks out for that, you know, people don't want to hear it. It is just a housing segregation argument. And it is a clear housing segregation argument. And I don't know why that would be a stronghold in Venice. I, it's beyond my capacity. I even said in a public meeting, someone was saying, you know, you just can't do this on expensive land. You can't do this in our neighborhood. It doesn't belong here. Everything should be at least east of the 405, which is like two miles away, right? Um, And I said, so that's a housing segregation argument. And I just have to disagree. I'm not a supporter of housing segregation because I just thought it would like change the conversation. (laughs) And the woman said, well, I am. I was just like, so I mean I don't know what you can say at that point I just like okay and that's why we're trying to focus our efforts again on what I think is the majority of Venice which is you know people have questions people are concerned and engaged in the future of their community and how do we get to a more equitable community I think is the goal of most people in Venice and we're trying to facilitate those conversations and we're not going to stop building affordable housing in Venice because we're We've been doing it for 30 years. We know it's great for communities, and we're just going to show folks. In the movement of housing justice, so I've heard on one side there's folks that are saying, well, why do we want to be in a community that doesn't want us there, but it's safer? And then there's the folks that are like, we made it safe, and we don't want you here. And how do we actually like create that mind shift that you belong wherever it is that you belong And also others belong as well. Yeah, so I have asked myself this question. I thought, if it's going to be this contentious, should we even be building here? But when you talk to folks who live in Venice, they say absolutely, right? The folks that live in our building are glad to be in Venice. They've got long histories in Venice. Some folks have been in Venice for generations and generations and believe that the neighborhood is still worth fighting for, that it's still theirs. And I agree, right? So I'm always going to try to stand side by side. Um, But yeah, it became a question for me, like, are we going to be putting targets on folks' backs? Like, are people going to be just waiting for people to do something wrong? Are people going to be looking out their windows and calling the cops? Like, you know, because I don't, I'm not a person who believes that concentration of poverty is a bad thing, that doing affordable housing in low-income communities is also a great thing. I just believe it's also a great thing in the West Side because otherwise we accept 
a segregated city. We accept that wealthy people can move into neighborhoods and just take them over and eliminate folks. And that there's a group of folks in Venice um, who've been there a long time who are still fighting to restore Venice, to reclaim pieces of it after this massive push out. It's a tough thing to do. And many people probably have no interest in doing it. I always try to tell folks when they say, well, if you build it, you know, people are just going to come pouring into Venice. It's like, you know, most people aren't interested in pouring into Venice, right? Like people also love being downtown or living in South LA or places they have history, right? It is because of that, that history, those roots, Mm -hmm. the things that people love that the unhoused community also loves about Venice and wants to stay there. That's why we continue to push these lines. But it is, it's a tough question. And it's just something that you, I think we all need to advance, which is, yes, we all belong. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have the basic human right to housing, um, that neighborhoods actually are shared spaces, that we're a part of this bigger city of Los Angeles and this li- bigger county of Los Angeles. And, you know, we, we don't get to build fences around our neighborhoods and keep other people out as much as some folks might like that. It's not the nature of where we live and, um, It is very discouraging, and that's what I always try to tell supporters, too. It's important for your voice to be out front, because if I were picking up the L.A. Times and I were unhoused in Venice, I would feel like the entire neighborhood didn't want me there. Mm. Um, But that's not true, and I think people know that. They feel that. Folks are coming out and have relationships and those kinds of things. But um, we need to establish a much stronger narrative um, that is different, that is about people's willingness to help and care and be inclusive and have solutions in their own communities. What this brings me to is when I started therapy and my therapist said, Lorraine, what do you love? And I'm like, I love green spaces. So she's like, go to the park and be there and thought journal and figure out like, what are the thoughts that are just like driving you while you're in the space? What if people picked their place of living based on, I feel safest near the beach or I feel most creative near the city, or I feel most calm where there's like parks. And yeah, what if that was the way of housing justice where people picked where they live, not because of the income brackets or where people want you there or how you've been pushed somewhere because that's where society has placed you. I also think that for people who haven't experienced displacement, it's hard to understand why displacement is so morally wrong. So like I'll hear things when I'm at meetings in Venice where people were like, well, this is crazy because like I'd love to have a house in Hawaii and I don't get to just live in Hawaii because I want to have a house in Hawaii. And I think what people don't understand is that displacement isn't about like, I want to be in a fancy community, but I don't have enough money to be in a fancy community. So I need someone to help me be there. What I think they don't get is that it's really about what is the community you're going to thrive in. And for most people, what the community you're going to thrive in is not Hawaii. I mean, unless you're from Hawaii, but (laughs) like, I think for a lot of people, The community you're going to thrive in is the community that you have connections to. So I remember talking to a gentleman 
in Skid Row. Um, and he had gotten a supportive housing unit in Winneka. Um, so he had been able to get a supportive housing unit. So that's a positive. But the challenge for him is all of his community was in Skid Row. That's where he knew everybody. So he was doing this crazy thing where he was taking the bus three hours every day from Winneka back to Skid Row, because that's where he had a sense of community. And I see this all the time in Venice, yep. um, where we have outreach teams who are doing this amazing work in Venice and people do want housing and services but if the only option we have for people is okay I know that this is where you go to church I know that this is where you know people and have a community but the only option we can give you for a place to live is actually 20 miles away in a community where you have no connections you don't have a church you don't feel safe they'll often say hey you know actually I feel safer here because this is where I know people. And so the idea that we're actually going to get people off the streets in Venice by building them housing many miles away where they have no connections is actually not going to work. Yeah. No, and there's plenty of people who do say yes to those things and then literally have to rebuild their whole entire lives because of that. But yeah, if that's the only solution is that everybody living on our streets and sidewalks needs to move into, you know, the core of LA or where it's cheapest to build, it will not work. Um, and it will not be good for our city and our region. Um, that's just without doubt. And that is the case for sure, is that people feel a very deep connection. The one thing about Venice that is somewhat similar to what we said about Skid Row is that there, it is a deep sense of place um, that doesn't exist everywhere in, in LA um, where people feel very connected. There's plenty of people who do not go east of Lincoln, let alone east of the 405. <laughs> the sense of place and neighborhood there is incredibly strong. And that is something that can be built upon um, for certain. And I think people definitely do not understand the level of forced displacement that has happened in Venice. Um, and that's somewhat true of folks who even were there when Venice was quite different and far more diverse. Um, because if it's not happening to you, you're not feeling it in the same way. But, you know, the loss of particularly the African-American community is felt everywhere. Every room you walk into, uh, you know, all of the community leadership. There's a fight right now over a historic black church in Oakwood that a family has bought to make into their single family 11,000 square foot mansion, right? So it's not like the people have been pushed, the institutions have been lost, um, and that is just devastating to community and the reason why folks are fighting, I think, even harder to hang on, to reclaim, to have things that say, this is still ours as well as yours, right? And this is so crazy about gentrifying communities is the original folks are always so welcoming. They're always like, sure, we'll share our space. We'll, you know, do all these things. We can all be here together. And then the folks get there and it's like, no, we can't be all here together. And like the push out starts so strong. So when folks in Boyle Heights and people are doing, you know, far more aggressive anti-gentrification actions, it's like, well, of course, because if you say, sure, there's room for all of us here, the eventual space is the rest of you are gone. It might happen faster or slower in certain communities, but the claim of wealth over communities is just really intense and it requires a ton of work and a ton of resistance to fight against. So there's a lot of bridge housing and supportive housing being built in Venice. Uh, what are some of the developments that are working? 
I, in the works. I wish there was a lot. There's a lot in comparison to the last 20 years. Um, but yes, there's a bunch of things happening. So there is a bridge housing site opening this month, um, 154 beds. And then we have five sites under development for supportive housing. Four of them are VCH sites, and then Tom Safford and Associates is doing VCH, another one. What is Venice Community Housing? Sorry. <laughs> um, so we have about 330 units, I think, in the pipeline in Venice of supportive housing. A handful of those units are affordable. Um, most of them are supportive housing. Some of them are mixed, affordable and supportive. And it is very exciting. It's not nearly enough, not nearly our fair share, but it is the most intense use of resources and um, housing development that's happened um, in probably more like 30 years. Holiday Venice is a project-based Section 8 development in Venice um, that's the largest community. It's like 235 units. That was built in the 80s. And then Venice Community Housing has, you know, put together like 20 units here, 30 units here, bit, bits and pieces. So we've not had this many units come in at one time in probably forever, um, which is really, really exciting. And we're really looking forward to it. I also think it's important that people understand that despite, because I feel like the NIMBYism's gotten a lot of media coverage, but the NIMBYism has actually not been successful at all, which is great that despite the challenges, people have found ways, like Venice Community Housing and the council member have found ways to overcome that and still get all of this building through. So I just feel like that piece of the story often gets lost, where there's this big media story about opposition is so gigantic, and it's like, well, actually, it's not actually stopping anything. It may be loud and difficult meetings and not fun, but things are still getting built. No, that's absolutely right, because bridge housing is opening. Um, We're breaking ground on a site um, next month. I think Tom Safran and Associates is breaking ground in a few months. They're in their final stages. Um, So yeah, there's a few that don't have final approval, (laughs) Um, but they will eventually. And I think that's right. It's uh, I think that that's where the majority voice and where the majority support and the majority of folks who want an inclusive community and want solutions in their neighborhood have been able to continue to influence decision makers, which is great. And honestly, if they didn't, it's on our decision makers and politicians to stand up against arguments around housing discrimination. And so, you know, we do our work to try to mobilize supporters, but even if we didn't, um, sometimes decision makers have to do the right thing, no matter what their constituents say. And in this case, Every decision maker in Los Angeles should be saying yes to any site every time there's an opportunity to build affordable or supportive housing. Yeah, I do want to give Councilmember Mike Bonin some credit and just a (laughs) shout out for being really good about, you know, working through the folks who may have difficult feelings and giving people a chance to voice those feelings, but not letting projects get stopped just because some people might feel uncomfortable about people of color or people without money moving into their neighborhood, continuing to move forward. So much appreciation for him for doing that. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit around, you know, one of the topics for today is othering. And I'd just love to hear what strategies you've seen work in terms of helping people see their houseless neighbors as human beings um, and sort of getting past the very deep othering that happens of people who don't have a home. I think the more space that we create for people to come together as community members, the better. So I tend to stay away from, even though I think that there is 
good and effective reason for like the spokesperson or the telling of a your own story in Venice, <laughs> particularly, because the distance between folks' reality is so vast. It's not like someone who is super wealthy and owns like one of the most expensive homes in Los Angeles is going to hear someone speak and think, that could happen to me, you know? So there's a way that that storytelling and spokespeople can create connection, I think, and it does in certain ways. But for me, it's just like the more we can bring people together as community members who care about something together, so we'll convene you know, advocacy meetings or a community meeting about a topic or, you know, go places together to city hall or a neighborhood council meeting or things like that and get folks out of the mindset of kind of knowing in advance who's housed and who's unhoused or maybe who has been unhoused before. Because once you know that, then you're sort of changing your language, even subconsciously. It's like, oh, maybe I should think about this differently. Um, so we're, we're trying to create spaces in which people are just coming together as active and concerned community members and start to break down some of those stereotypes in folks' mind. I mean, our staff actually, at our staff fun day this year, chose to make sack lunches and just go out and talk to folks on our streets and sidewalks and have lunch and that kind of stuff. A couple people didn't think it was fun, but, um, but that was like, a, we voted. Even for folks doing the work all the time, we can get in kind of this othering thing or, you know, what people are capable of. And so people wanted to get out of that mindset for the day and just go be in community with folks and talk to people. Um, I think those things are really effective. But honestly, I don't know. I don't know what's the most effective. I think that the othering is so deep and so deeply ingrained and the predisposed notions of who folks are is so intense even amongst the best intended people that I think we need to think more deeply about it. A lot of the work that people have done around having folks with lived experience in different forums and different decision making and that kind of stuff is really great and I feel like LA Can did a lot of that groundwork, and I think that was a space we wanted folks to be in. But I just even think like having to have special <laughs> places for people to be to have a voice is also like creates a little bit of othering and also creates a little bit of space for people to be like, oh, I, I've been inclusive. I have this committee or I have this whatever, which is very or I've hired, you know, a bunch of folks that work at the very bottom pay scale in my organization. And so I don't know. I feel like we have a long way to go. Both those of us who do the work need to set the example. And I think we have a lot more work even there to get there, let alone to convince other people. For the vision of housing justice, where do you see us working toward? Like us in this room? <laughs> ah, well, let's look at your vision for yourself. Okay. And then like, if you could do the magic wand and everyone else has a vision. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, I mean, to me, it's like in order for us to get to a vision of housing justice, which is more about what we've talked about, which is everyone can be in a space that they choose and thrive and can build a life around their home as their home base is kind of a vision of housing justice, right? And that housing is a right and it's stable and can't be taken away at the slightest policy change and those kinds of things, which is basically almost everyone living in affordable housing, right? Because funding can be cut, 
banks can foreclose on you for any old reason. So that's a piece of housing justice that is like a long-term vision. But for me, like the core of housing justice in today is about building at scale for the actual need, preserving every last bit of affordable and rent-controlled housing that we have, and massively improving tenant rights so that stability is true and that you address this imbalance of power between landlords and tenants. We know how to do those things, and we just don't do them at scale at all. But they're not rocket science. On the tenant rights and housing preservation side, you know, there's so many more things that we could do. So I guess that's where I focus all of my kind of daily energy is how do we do better in those three areas and how do we do it at scale of the actual need versus creating this sort of lottery system, which is what we have now, which is like, oh, you are the lucky one. Um, You're going to get housing today and these thousands of other folks are not. If we could sort of join forces around those three pieces and push them all strongly and equally, I think that would be one good step forward. But I feel like housing justice is like a much longer strategy around just more like fairness and equity, you know, those things we are a long ways away from. I want to thank you, though, because we end every interview with a question about housing justice. And it is a little bit of a broad concept and people struggle to answer. And that was a really succinct answer (laughs) to be able to like build at scale, preserve every last thing we can and dramatically expand tenant rights. That's pretty amazing to be able to that clearly articulate a vision for housing justice. And then, of course, the longer work. Um, So thank you. It has been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you. It's very fun. Yes. Thank you very much. Appreciate your work. Thank you. Continue to be great because you are that. (laughs) Thank you. A huge thank you to Becky for sharing with us. We're going to close out today's episode with a poem Dory Midnight wrote called Wash Your Hands. This poem helps us think about how to take care of ourselves during the COVID-19 pandemic. Wash Your Hands from Dory Midnight We are humans relearning to wash our hands. Washing our hands is an act of love. Washing our hands is an act of care. Washing our hands is an act that puts the hypervigilant body at ease. Washing our hands helps us return to ourselves by washing away what does not serve. Wash your hands, like you are washing the only teacup left that your great-grandmother carried across the ocean, like you are washing the hair of a beloved who is dying, like you are washing the feet of Grace Lee Boggs, Beyonce, Jesus, your auntie, Audrey Lord, Mary Oliver, You get the picture. Like this water is poured from a jug your best friend just carried for three miles from the spring they had to climb a mountain to reach. Like water is a precious resource made from time and miracle. Wash your hands and cough into your elbow, they say. Rest more. Stay home. Drink water. Have some soup, they say. To which I would add, burn some plants your ancestors burned when there was fear in the air. Boil some aromatic leaves in a pot on your stove until your windows steam up. Open your windows. Eat a piece of garlic every day. Tie a clove around your neck. Breathe. My friends, it is always true, these things. It has already been time. It is always true that we should move with care and intention, asking, 
Do you want to bump elbows instead with everyone we meet? It is always true that people are living with one lung, with immune systems that don't work so well, or perhaps work too hard, fighting against themselves. It is already true that people are hoarding the things that the most vulnerable need. It is already time that we might want to fly on airplanes less and not go to work when we are sick. It is already time that we might want to know who in our neighborhood has cancer, who has a new baby, who is old, with children in another state, who has extra water, who has a root cellar, who is a nurse, who has a garden full of elecampane and nettles. It is already time that temporarily non disabled people think about people living with chronic illness and disabled folks, that young people think about old people. It is already time to stop using synthetic fragrances to not smell like bodies, to pretend we're not all dying. It is already time to remember that those scents make so many of us sick. It is already time. To not take it personally when someone doesn't want to hug you. It is already time to slow down and feel how scared we are. We are already afraid. We are already living in the time of fires. When fear arises, and it will, let it wash over your entire body instead of staying curled up tight in your shoulders. If your heart tightens, contract and expand. Science says compassion strengthens the immune system. We already know that, but capitalism gives us amnesia and tricks us into thinking that it's the thing that protects us. But it's the way we hold the thing, the way we do the thing. Those of us who've forgotten amuletic traditions, we turn to hoarding hand sanitizer and masks. We find someone to blame. We think that will help. Want to blame something? Blame capitalism. Blame patriarchy. Blame white supremacy. It is already time to remember to hang garlic on our doors, to dip our handkerchiefs in thyme tea, to rub salt on our feet, to pray the rosary, kiss the mezuzah, cleanse with an egg. In the middle of the night, when you wake up with terror in your belly, it is time to think about stardust and geological time, redwoods and dance parties. And mushrooms remediating toxic soil. It is time to care for one another, to pray over water, to wash away fear every time we wash our hands. Thank you to Dory Midnight for giving us permission to share her poem. You can learn more about Dory on her website, dorymidnight.com. We hope that you'll keep listening and subscribe to the podcast. Rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please reach out by emailing us at housingjusticepodcast. Again, that's housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. We welcome your questions and we will have a question and answer episode later in the season. So reach out and ask any question you have about homelessness in LA. Housing Justice LA is Lorraine Cantley. Molly Reisman. Bill Lance. New Dad. Our music is provided by Adam Goldman. Special thanks to Anne English for her support and work on the CSH Speak Up program. This podcast is produced on Tongva land in Los Angeles and made possible through a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation.